We are all so excited about being here. I'm excited about my friend Dave Clayton being with us. I don't want to take up much of his time. I've told you a lot about him the last uh, couple weeks. I've known Dave since he was quite young. I know he still looks quite young. He's actually 40. I actually see gray hairs, which makes me very thankful. But um, I remember he was very young. I, actually, I talked to Dave once about being our youth minister here. Of course, I've talked to about 100 people <laughs> through the years until we got our, you know, our, our permanent youth minister later. But God had some amazing plans for Dave. And I've just loved watching at a distance, being able to get with him here and there. Uh, he's the, the founding leader of the Ethos Church in Nashville, Tennessee, a church that's just exploded, reaching hundreds and hundreds of people. And what I love about Dave, and why we brought him here today, is he is a man on a mission, leading a church on a mission. And it's going to bless us greatly. Now, I do want to remind you that Dave preaches in church that meets in a bar, all right? So things are sort of loose there. So could you please just loosen up and welcome Dave in a big way to Landmark this morning? Y'all are so loose. Okay, (laughs) let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this morning, God, for the things we've already been learning. Lord, that Bible class was worth the whole whole week, God. I just took seven pages of notes, just practical things. So, Lord, I'm so excited about Dave being here and, and what he's communicating to us, Father. And, Father, that he's not just communicating information, Lord. He's actually living this, and his church is living this out. And, Lord, I know as a church that we're a church on a mission. I feel like Paul who says to churches, you're loving, but you need to love more and more. And, Father, we're on a mission, but we want to be more on a mission. And so, Father, today, bless Dave. Pour your spirit into him. Help us, Father, to be good listeners and either even better appliers, Father, so that more and more people might come to know your son. Thank you today that we're going to be reminded of what's really important. Bless my friend and use him. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Hey, good morning. What a, what a gift to get to be here. You know, buddy, you're so kind. I, I met Buddy when I was in college. He came and spoke at an event that I was at. And I don't know if you've gotten used to this or not because you get to hear him teach every week. But I remember sitting there in college just hearing him share the scriptures so, uh, so powerfully yet simply. And I thought, man, I want to know this guy. And so over the years, I've admired him. And then over the last eight or nine years, we've gotten to become friends. And just such a gift. And so, you know, the Bible says give honor where honor is due. Could we just take a moment just honor just who he is, the ministry, week after week after week? Such a gift. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. You know, Buddy called and asked if I would just come and talk about what it looks like to, to live on mission with Jesus, to share our faith uh, with others who don't know Jesus, evangelism, whatever uh, term that, that you would have. And so that's what we're talking about today and then again this evening and on Tuesday night as well. And so we'll just kind of keep building on that theme. Uh, as you're turning to Mark chapter 2, I want to give you just a little bit of context uh, for who I am and where I come from. My, my wife, Sydney, and I, We've been married almost 17 years. Uh, we've been together uh, more than 21 years, so we dated for a while, then got married. We have three boys, uh, Micah, who just turned 11, Jack just turned 9, and Judah is about to turn 7, and uh, they're just the joy of our life. Typically, uh, we love to travel as a family, but uh, couldn't make it work with school schedule this time, so I'm honored to, to get to be sent by them to come be with you. You all have been a real gift. Uh, but about 13 years ago, Sydney and I, we felt called by God. We were in our mid-20s at the time, and we felt called by God to, to plant a church 
in the heart of downtown Nashville. And uh, to be really clear, uh, we didn't know any church planters. We didn't know what that was, you know. Um, we didn't have any context, but we just sensed that God was inviting us to, to step out in faith and to begin reaching a generation in the city that did not yet know Jesus or maybe wandered away. And so um, we started a church that, that meets uh, in a bar slash music venue in the heart of the city. And we kind of meet across the city in different spaces, and we train people up and we send them out. But, but we do all of this because somewhere along the way, Jesus just got a hold of our heart, and he got a hold of our hearts in very different ways. My, my wife grew up in a, in a home uh, that did not know Jesus at the time I grew up. My dad's a preacher. God brought us together, and, and uh, he just put us on a mission. And we love getting to be in spaces like this with other believers to just go, man, what might the Spirit of God want to, want to do through us? Uh, and, and I'm excited to be here with you. So thank you for the warm uh, welcome. You know, my, my passion for uh, living on mission or sharing faith or evangelism, however you would phrase it, um, did not come naturally to me, even though I grew up in a Christian home. It wasn't until I was about 16 years old where God began to, to, to reveal to me that although there was this desire to live out my faith, I was scared to death to do it. I didn't know how to do it. And so when I was 16 years old, our church hired this new youth minister. He was fresh out of college. He was passionate. He was idealistic. His, his desire was to see high school students reach their high school students' uh, friends for Jesus. And so he'd get up on Wednesday nights, and he would preach these sermons that were like one part WWE wrestler, one part motivational speaker, one part theologian. I mean, he was just red hair on fire. He'd get up, and he'd yell at us for an hour about Jesus. We loved it. And, uh, and then he'd send us out, and I'd get all stirred up to share my faith, and then I'd go back on Thursday morning to my pagan high school, and I thought, there's no chance I'm sharing my faith here. Like, and maybe you've been there before, you know, where... Someone talks about living on mission with Jesus, and you like the ideal of it, but in reality, it just feels impossible. And so he'd get up and he'd preach every Wednesday night, and a a few weeks, a few months went by, he realized it wasn't bearing much fruit, and so he decided he needed to add a a practical element to it. So on Friday nights, he started hosting these events. You know, we'd do something fun. We'd go to a hockey game or a baseball game, or we'd have a beach party. We'd do something, and he'd say, hey, your only uh, requirement to come to the Friday night event is you have to bring a friend with you that doesn't know Jesus. And I thought, man, this should be easy. I grew up in church, but I was scared to death. I didn't know how to do it. And so, you know, I showed up the first Friday night. I had not even attempted to invite anybody. I'm like, I'm the preacher's kid. There's no way he's going to kick me out. You know, I'm just going to show up. And so I show up, and my youth minister comes right to me, and he says, hey, Dave. He he said, where's your friend? And I did what any good preacher's kid would do. I just lied. I said, you know, I I said, I tried. They said, you're going to be here. They ghosted me. They didn't show up. And and I don't know that he believed me, but he let me off the hook. The next Friday night rolled around, and same thing. I was scared to ask friends. I didn't ask friends, so I showed up, and nobody's with me. He said, hey, this is your second strike. He said, next week, don't come back unless you come back with a friend that doesn't know Jesus. I'm like, man, that's a lot of pressure. This guy's like hardcore. And so next Friday night rolls around, I really wanted to hang with everybody, but I didn't know how to bring somebody with me that didn't know Jesus. So I did the next best thing. I got one of my buddies who's a Baptist. I thought, you know, maybe that counts. You know, maybe he's lost. <laughs> and and so I'm like, hey, can you come and at least for the first 20 minutes just pretend you're a pagan. I mean, I don't care what, after that. Just, just don't be too Christian at first. And so we show up and my, my youth minister, he could smell the Christianity from a mile away. He walks out to my friend Josh and he goes, are you a follower of Jesus? And he's like, I love the Lord. And I'm like, dang it. You know, and, and I'm like, just for a minute, just pretend. And, and he kicked us out. He sent us home. And I thought, my dad's a preacher. He's going to fire you. You can't do that. Um, but, but he sent me home. And I remember just all of this frustration and angst that I would feel when he'd get up and he'd talk about living on mission with Jesus. Because I wanted to do it. I just did not know how to do it. And so I remember sitting down with my youth minister. 
a couple weeks later and said, hey, we don't need any more sermons on this. Don't tell us how to do it. You have to show us. You have to show us. You have to show us how to do it. So he came up with this idea uh, that became a real uh, breakthrough moment for us where he would take us in small groups at a time just up the road to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I grew up in Charleston. He'd take us to Myrtle Beach just down the road. And if you've never been to Myrtle Beach, just imagine Panama City on spring break on the Strip. That's what Myrtle Beach is like. And so he'd take us to Myrtle Beach, uh, a small group at a time, and we'd spend the whole weekend. And he'd teach us about Jesus and the mission that we were called to. And then he'd send us out in groups of two to actually try it and actually practice it. And so it was a life-changing experience for me. So I remember the first year I went, I was 16 years old, not too long after the story that I just told you. And he had taken me with a group of my buddies, and we get to Saturday night. He had been just pumping us full of information for two straight days, and it was time to go live it out. But before we did that, we, we walked down the street about 9 o'clock at night to this gas station, me and my youth minister, to get some snacks for the rest of the group. And we walk into this gas station it's lively on a Saturday night there on the Strip in Myrtle Beach. And as we're there picking up snacks, this young couple walks into the uh, convenience store. In the early 20s, they were Myrtle Beach through and through. They were terminally sunburned. They'd been drinking since 9 a.m. They walk in to the place. They make a big kind of loud announcement that they're there. Everybody notices them. The young man, he walks between us. He goes to the, to the fridge. He gets a big case of beer. The girl that he's with, she goes to the, the aisle on the other side of the store, kind of away from us. And... This is a Sunday morning, and there's kids in the room, so I'm going to tell this story in code. You can kind of read through the lines. But uh, the, the girl on the other side, she holds up this large box of uh, things that people use to prevent diseases in certain scenarios. And, and so she holds it up, and she goes, hey, is this good for tonight? And, and uh, makes a big scene, and the room felt about as awkward as it feels right now in, in, in this space. And she tosses them to her boyfriend. He walks up to the counter with the beer and that box of uh, said things. And she walks out to the car. And my youth minister looks at me and said, now's your chance. And I'm like, now's my chance for what? (laughs) And he's like, now's your chance to do what we've been talking about, to share your faith. I'm like, buddy, I'm not sharing my faith with anybody in this gas station, especially not this guy, uh, this guy tonight. And he said, okay, just stand back and watch as I go share. And so I remember standing back, just getting ready to watch this dumpster fire unfold, you know, and he goes up, and my youth minister, who's in his mid-20s, I was 16, I looked like I was about nine years old. My youth minister walks up, puts his hand on this guy's shoulder, this total stranger, and he said, hey, just saw what you and your girlfriend are up to, know you have big plans for tonight. He says, but if I could just interject for one minute. He said, if you would consider changing your plans, if you'd come back to the hotel with me and my buddy Dave, so now I'm roped into it. He says, if you'd come back to the hotel with me and my buddy Dave, we would give you something tonight that would satisfy you in ways that she could never satisfy you. And as he's saying it, I'm thinking, this guy doesn't think we're offering the gospel. I'm like, like, this isn't going well. And I'm trying to get as far away as possible. And my youth minister, here's what he's saying about the time that he says it. He goes, I'm talking about Jesus. And the guy goes, I'm not into him either. And he leaves and walks out. And that was the moment I pledged, I'll never share my faith again. Like, you know, just... Total disaster. But I remember walking out of that gas station, and my youth minister looks at me and goes, wasn't that amazing? (laughs) And I'm like, bro, I don't think we were in the same planet. That was not amazing. That was terrible. And the Spirit of God used that moment of failure and something my youth minister would say on the strip of Myrtle Beach that night to open up my heart in ways that uh, I just forever have given God thanks for. He looked at me and he said, Dave, as long as you think it's your job to manage the outcome... You will never experience the joy of just walking in obedience on mission with Jesus. As long as you think it's your job to manage the outcome, like how they respond, what they think. As long as you think it's your job to control the conversation, look for the perfect opportunity. He goes, if you think it's your job to manage the outcome, 
you will never experience the joy of just walking in obedience on life of mission with Jesus. And I don't know how to explain it, but God, God used that failure and he lit this like evangelistic fire <laughs> kind of in me. And, and I want to be very clear, in no way am I an expert. I'm just a fellow experimenter, a brother in faith going, man, I, I believe God has more for us than this. And what I've found in my own journey and in so many followers of Jesus is a lot of us, we spend our whole lives uh, living in what our church likes to call the evangelism guilt cycle. And the evangelism guilt cycle goes something like this. Maybe you've experienced it. It starts in this first place of, I know I should be sharing my faith. You hear the sermons, you read the books, you see the podcast, you hear the testimony at the conference. I think there's something in us, the longer in church, we know we should be sharing our faith. But the next part of the cycle, part two, is it's not just that I know that I should be, it's, it's that I don't know how to do it. And so that's what I was feeling as a 16-year-old. It's what I still wrestle with as a 40-year-old. I know I should be, but I, I don't always know how to do this. I don't know what to say. I don't know when to say it. I don't know where to say it. I don't know what to do. Which leads us to the third part of the evangelism guilt cycle. So I'm scared to try. I'm scared I'm going to fail. I'm scared I'm going to make it worse. I'm scared I'm going to drive them farther away from faith. I'm scared I'm going to mess things up in my family. Maybe you felt that before. Which leads you to the fourth part of the cycle is so I don't try. Or I won't try. But I know I should. And a lot of us, we, we just live in that perpetual cycle. I know I should. I don't know how. I'm scared to death, so I'm not going to try. But I know I should. And we, we keep going back. And so somebody like me stands up and they share a testimony or they, they share the story of living on mission. And we have these competing emotions in us of both, man, I know I was made for that. So we get excited and yet fear and trembling and we kind of shut down. And if we're not careful, we just become a big community of pretenders. Where we go, man, I know we should be doing this, but how do we do it? And here's what I believe is that, that sharing our faith is ultimately not just about sharing information. It's about making an introduction to the only person that could change anyone. That sharing our faith is how do we bring people into relationship with the one that we know, that we love, that has changed us. And the greatest barrier to making that introduction of faith it's not how much you know or how little you know. It's not uh, your friend's background or their barriers of faith. The greatest barrier for introducing somebody to Jesus in faith is fear. And so this morning, uh, just very practically, I want to look at one of my favorite stories out of Mark chapter 2. And I just want to look at what it takes to break us through that wall of fear. What, what breaks us through this guilt cycle that so many of us live in. I love the way that it starts. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. It says this, A few days later... When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. I just love thinking about that. Like, how'd they hear? You know, this is before the internet. They, they didn't see it on social media. They heard from a friend of a friend. Hey, he's back. Who's back? You know, you know the, the miracle worker, the healer, you know, that great teacher, the prophet. I don't know who they thought he was at this point, but hey, he's back. And you can just imagine, word is spe- spreading through the local high school. It's spreading at the local fishing dock. It's spreading in the local business place and local home. And I love this. It says in verse 2, it says, when they heard this, they gathered in such large numbers. They didn't wait for Sunday to roll around. They didn't wait for an invitation. They didn't wait for a conference. They didn't wait to be invited. They went, man, we hear that Jesus is here and we're moving toward him. So such large numbers gathered that there's no room left in the house, not even outside of the door. And I love this. So Jesus does what he always does. He never wastes an opportunity. It says he preached the word to them. Verse 3. So some men came to Jesus, bringing to him a paralyzed man 
carried by four of them. And I think sometimes we read the Bible and it's so two-dimensional, it's so black and white, it's, we can just forget the story. But I, I want you to just think about this story for a second. Have you ever tried to carry a grown man anywhere? Like, think about how hard this would have been. Think about how much work and effort this would have been to, to carry a grown man through a crowded street. I doubt any of these friends were professional paramedics. No one probably had a great, you know, um, uh, you know what's it called, a, um, a what? A stretcher, there we go. No one had a great, you know, those big fancy words in Nashville. I don't know what a stretcher is. No, nobody had a stretcher leaning up against the shed in the back of their house. They just saw a friend that had a need and they made this stretcher. Can you imagine them going through the streets and as they're going through the streets, the guy's leg keeps falling off one side and the guy in the front keeps complaining about how slow the guys in the back are and the guys in the back are complaining about how fast the guys in the front are and they're all complaining about how heavy this guy is and he's complaining that they're making fun of him. Just imagine the scene. They're moving through the streets, verse 4. And they came to the house and they could not get in to see Jesus because of the crowd, which that's another sermon for another day. I'll let Buddy preach that one sometime. How often do the people that need to get in to see Jesus the most, they show up and it's the people that claim to know Jesus that don't make any room for the folks to find their way in? I love this. They don't get deterred by this reality, though. So they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, digging through it, and they lowered the mat that the man was lying on. I just, I love the way this scene unfolds. I mean, it's so crazy. I don't know how long they stood at the door and contemplated what their options were. I don't know how long they politely tapped someone on the shoulder, hey, can you make room? I don't know how many times they began to walk away, and then they came back. And uh, there's probably some guy in the group that was, you know, just a blue-collar construction guy. He's like, I bet you I can tear a hole in that roof. And another guy's like, I could get a ladder. And there's probably someone in the group that was the sensible, logical one that thought, hey, that's going to cost a lot of money. And I don't know what their home insurance, homeowner's insurance is. And you just imagine what would have unfolded. But what they knew was that Jesus was in the room. And the guy they were holding needed to see Jesus. And so no barrier, no hardship, nothing in front of them was going to stop that. I love this verse 5. And so so when Jesus, they they tear open a hole in the roof. The dust is falling in, the boards are falling in, a brick falls in, hits a kid. There's all sorts of commotion, all this stuff's happening. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw whose faith, my church talks back to me, help me out. When Jesus saw, come on, when Jesus saw when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? Whose faith? The friend's faith. When he saw their faith, he turned and looked at the paralyzed man and said, son, your sins are forgiven. Did you know that Jesus is not just responsive to the repentant heart of a sinner, but Jesus is also moved by the faithful friends who bring sinners into his presence. And he looks, he looks at him and he goes, man, I see what you guys are after. And then he turns to this guy. The story keeps going like this. Verse 6. It says, now there's some teachers of the law that were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. So he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. I love, that almost feels like a trick question, you know, it's like when your professor in college would ask a question and no one wants to answer because they're scared they'll get it wrong. Jesus goes, what's easier, to tell him that his sins are forgiven or to tell this guy to walk? And every human being in the room is going, well, it's probably easier to just say out loud, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus knew it was far more challenging to make a sinful person right with the holy God than it was to fix a sinful person's legs. 
Jesus, like, Jesus looks at this situation because the easiest thing to do is fix this guy's legs. He goes, but to fix his heart is going to cost my life. Jesus knew that he could say something so quickly because of what he was going to do later, which would be so costly on the cross. So he asks this question. He says, he says what is easier? I love this verse 10. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks out at these Pharisees. He says, I want you to know. He said, I want you to know that I have the ability to make you right with God. I want you to know that I can forgive, that I can heal, that I can redeem, that I can cleanse. And in order for you to know, let me do something in his life. So he turned in verse 11. He looked at the man. He said, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up. He took his mat. He walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Look back at verse 5, though. When Jesus saw their faith... He said to the man, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their faith. There's so much we could dig into in the story, but there's just, just two things that I, I want us to think about this morning as is, is we ask the Spirit of God to help us break through that, that barricade of fear that keeps so many of us from living into the mission that God's called us to. If you take notes, the, the first is this. The first thing that moves us through that barricade of fear is just clarity about who Jesus is. It's just clarity about who Jesus is. His beauty, his brilliance, his, his kindness, his compassion, his, his strength, his uniqueness, his deity, his nearness. Like all of these things that make Jesus Jesus. Wherever there is a spirit of evangelism, there is clarity about who Jesus is. And where there is no clarity about Jesus, there is no commitment to evangelism. We don't know a lot about these guys. We don't know where they went to school. We don't know what synagogue they were a part of. We don't know what their theology was. We don't know what they knew about the Old Testament, uh, books of the Torah. We don't know any of that. But what we know is they had clarity about Jesus. When they heard Jesus was in town, they knew that Jesus was capable of changing their friend, and they knew that Jesus was willing to change their friend. And so in faith, they said, we're going to show up, and we're going to do whatever we've got to do to get our friend at the feet of Jesus. There's clarity about Jesus. It breaks us through the wall of fear. Think about years ago, there's a woman in our church. She had a really difficult, difficult story. And in fact, you know, so many of her parts of her story, I don't even want to share publicly, but um, she was abused and wounded and hurt and trafficked by her own family. Uh, years just living in the prison of that lifestyle is, is so terrible, so hard. Uh, but in her late 30s, uh, someone introduced her to Jesus, just laid her at Jesus' feet. Um, Jesus began to heal, to restore, to touch her life in unbelievable ways. And she became this incredible evangelist in our church. And it's amazing because in, in those days, she had, she had so little knowledge of Christianity. She had so little knowledge about the scriptures. She had so little knowledge about the Old Testament. You could ask her, hey, who's Moses? She'd go, he's in the Bible. That's about all I know. Who's Abraham? He's in the Bible. What's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? She had no clue. But do you know what she had clarity about? She had clarity about Jesus. She goes, he's the one that met me in my pit of despair. He's the one that showed up in my heartache. He's the one that forgave me of my sins. And he's the one that redeemed the sins that were committed against me. He's the one that showed up and took something messy and has made it beautiful. She had clarity about Jesus. And she became a great evangelist. You know, she'd bring all of her friends from really crazy lifestyles to church with her. And she'd, she'd a lot of times trick them to show up with her. She'd say, hey, I'm going to this bar downtown. And we're going to be with a bunch of cool people singing. You want to come with us? And everybody's like, yeah. And, and they'd show up and realize that they'd gotten tricked into a church service. And she'd always ask me, she's like, am I allowed to trick people into the kingdom? I'm like, I think so. I don't know. 
I'm not sure. I haven't found a verse about that one, you know. But she would show up with her friends, and so this one night, she shows up with a friend, and we're having baptisms. And baptisms are one of my favorite moments. We bring out these horse troughs, and we fill them up with water, and all the kids gather around the horse troughs, and they're splashing, and they're singing, and people are dancing and cheering. And it's like a Titans, uh, it's like Titans Stadium whenever we're actually winning. I mean, it's, it is, it's exciting. People are, it's just so much fun. Buddy's been there for one of these. And I, I remember that night we're having baptisms, and I'm over praying and receiving people that are coming up to be baptized. And she comes up and she says, hey, I'm here with my friend. My friend, uh, she, she's been a practicing witch. And I'm like, I didn't even know that's still a thing. <laughs> and and uh, she said, she's been a practicing witch and she just gave her life to Jesus. And I said, oh, when? She said, about 30 minutes ago. Like, wow, tell me about this. And her friend just begins to tell me this story that she had been invited in. And she had all of this pagan paraphernalia that she threw away by the communion tables, these tarot cards and all these other things. And her friend just kept telling her about Jesus. She was encountering the love of Jesus. And she just, she got on her knees. She said, Jesus, I need you to forgive me, heal me, save me, change me from the inside out. And that night we got to baptize her in Christ because her friend had the courage to carry her and just lay her down at the feet of Jesus. And she didn't know a lot, but man, she had clarity about who Jesus is. Clarity about Jesus has this way of breaking us through the wall of fear. I'll give you one more. It's not just clarity about Jesus. It's a compassion for people. When you have clarity for Jesus, but you have no compassion for people, I'd argue you might not have as much clarity about Jesus as you think you do. If you have clarity about Jesus, but you're still as mean as a snake, you probably haven't seen Jesus as clear as you thought you have. But man, when you, when you see Jesus, when you see him for who he is, this compassion for people begins to stir up in you. And I love these guys, you know, they didn't just have clarity about Jesus. Clarity about Jesus would have just driven them to the house to hear the sermon for themselves. But it was compassion for people that caused them to stop, to, to build a stretcher, to solve a problem, to get creative, to do whatever it takes to get their friend in, in the midst of Jesus. And it's an amazing thing. When clarity about Jesus meets a compassion for people, what God will do in the midst of that. I love watching the, the way that our people live out their compassion. I'll just tell you one simple story. There's a guy in our church who years ago, uh, he, he came to faith in Jesus. He's a Vanderbilt student at the time, just super smart on academic scholarship. Guys like me don't get to go to Vanderbilt, much less have scholarships at Vanderbilt. And so I'm sitting down with him trying to answer his questions of the faith. And every time he'd ask me a question, I typically just say, I don't know, but I'll try to find out next week I'll tell you. And I don't know if you know, that's a perfectly acceptable answer. I don't know, but I'll find out and I'll come back and I'll tell you. And so he and I would just talk about faith. And uh, over time, he, he gave his life to Jesus, got to baptize him. That was a great joy. I said, hey, wh- what are you going to do with, with this new story that God's written you into? He said, I'm going to look for every opportunity to just tell people what God has done in my life. And so in the most Vanderbilt way ever, he made a spreadsheet in Excel. He wrote down everybody that he's going to sit down with, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He knew he had 18 months before he graduated college. And in 18 months, he shared his faith with nearly 500 people. He came back and told me, I'm like, dude, I haven't done that in 20 years. Just blown away. And he wasn't motivated by legalism or fear or guilt. He was motivated by the clarity that he had for Jesus and the compassion that he had for his classmates and his dorm mates and his professors. And he went, I love you enough to introduce you to the one that I love. And see guys, something happens. Like if we just think it's our job to bring someone into a new religion, you'll never have the courage to bust through that wall of fear. You'll keep it all private and personal. 
But when we realize we've been given the opportunity to bring people into relationship with the only one that knows them, loves them, and can change them, the whole story begins to change. And where there's clarity about Jesus and there's compassion for people, there's this courage to step out of our comfort zones into all that God has called us towards. And he never calls us to manage the outcomes. It's always just about joyfully walking in obedience. It's so much fun. You know, I said this in our Bible class. I'll say it again. You know, I feel like my ministry is just like a Home Depot ministry. I'm just looking at our people going, hey, you can do this and the Spirit of God will help. Hey, you can do this. We can help. Hey, you can share your faith. You can bring people in. You can take a risk. You can be bold. And we believe God can do something in the midst of it. What I love about Mark chapter 2 is everything I love about these four friends is something that I see even more fully in Jesus. Jesus who lived with great clarity about what mattered most to God. Jesus who walked in unbelievable, uh, unbelievable compassion for every person that he set uh, his eyes upon. And Jesus who walked in the courage to break out of the comfort zone of heaven to step into the mess of the world so that you and I could come to know him through the cross and the empty tomb. And so this morning, I want to invite you right now to get out your communion elements, to get the bread and to get the cup. And I'm not sure how you all typically receive communion as a church. What we do is I, I pray, and then we get in groups of three or four or five people, and we talk and we pray together. And here's what I want you to do. Before we set our eyes on the mission out there, we want to just thank God for the way that he's met us in Jesus. We want to thank God for the way that he sent people to carry us to the foot of the cross And so as you break the bread, as you take the cup, take a few minutes and just thank Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And thank Jesus for the people that have brought you to his feet. And and then the worship team will come up and lead and uh, we'll we'll send send you out here for the day. So Father, thank you for the gift. Thank you for the gift of your love for us. Lord, thank you for this bread that we hold, which is such a tangible picture of your love, your compassion, your clarity, your courage. Lord, thank you for this cup of juice that we hold, which is such a picture of your clarity, of your compassion, of your courage, God, toward us. God, this morning we receive it with gratitude, with thanks for the people that carried us to your feet. We realize none of us got here on our own. And so, God, as we receive the bread and we we receive the cup, we receive this communally, we thank you. But, Lord, we thank you that although they might have brought us to your feet, you are the one that has changed us. You're the one that has healed us. You're the one that is still changing us, still healing, still forgiving. And so, Lord, we give you thanks. Lord, would you fill this church with a fresh wind of clarity and compassion as we live on mission with you. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I want to encourage you right now in groups of two or three, turn to the person next to you, share, testify where you've seen the goodness of God as you take the bread and the cup and the worship team will sing over us. I want to invite the ministry leaders and shepherds and their spouses to make their way up front. And I just want to give you a moment. If, if you want to receive prayer for anything, you know, this morning at the first service, we just said, you know, maybe you need prayer. Maybe you're the one that needs to be carried to the feet of Jesus this morning and you know you need it for yourself. You, you're ready to, to be baptized, to make a decision of faith. This is a great time to come forward and to to make that step to receive those prayers. Um, But for the rest of you, what I would encourage you is if you have somebody in your life, friend, family member, coworker, neighbor, that you know, man, they need to be carried into the presence of Jesus. um, This is a great time to come receive prayer on behalf of somebody that you love. And so the worship team is going to sing and lead us in a time of worship. Uh, But if you want to receive prayer for yourself or on behalf of anybody else, Come up and receive prayer now. So, Father, we love you, and we just thank you. Uh, just, uh, it's great that we get to pray, but it is amazing that you hear, that you hear these prayers, that you respond to these prayers in faith. 
And Lord, we don't, we don't exactly know when or how or what you're going to do in response to these prayers, but Lord, we come to you in faith. And so this morning, whether it's a personal response from us toward you or it's a response on behalf of somebody that we love, Lord, would you give us the faith to get out of our seat, to come up front, to receive what only you can give us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I invite you to come down, receive prayer for yourself or on behalf of someone else as we worship.